Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 310. Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Our guest this week is Jerome or Jay Myers. He is a fellow engineer turned real estate investor. So I had a great time speaking with him on the podcast today. Since leaving corporate America after building a $20 million division, Jay has become one of the most sought after thought leaders in the multifamily development space. We're going to talk about how Jay made that transition, built his real estate investment business using joint ventures and why he prefers that model along with so many other great things, including mindset and things like that. So I'm excited to bring on Jay. Let's jump right into this week's episode. All right, today I welcome on the show fellow engineer turned real estate investor, Jay Myers. Jay, hey, welcome to the podcast. Jacob, it's exciting to be with you today, man. How are things out in your part of the world? I can't complain. It's a beautiful Friday, heading into the weekend, lots of productivity stuff on my calendar, so I'm excited. But let's talk about you. How's everything with you? Tell us about how you are, who you are, all that good stuff. How I am, I'm amazing. (laughs) Uh, Every time somebody gives me the opportunity to talk about it. Who am I? I'm the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. I went to engineering school and played football for four years in college. And I left and went into corporate America, climbed that ladder and kind of my claim to fame as an engineer, project manager, Six Sigma guy was building a $20 million division for a construction company. I got the great opportunity after doing that of laying folks off two years in a row. And after the first time I said I wouldn't do that, the second time I became a corporate America dropout. And, you know, it's pretty cool to be a college dropout, but I think corporate America dropout may be even cooler. And I got to pursue my passion. As a sophomore in engineering, I realized I really didn't want to be an engineer, right? I liked the math. I liked the challenge, but I didn't just want to sit behind a desk every day. And although I'm civil by training, I didn't really see a direct linkage to like a major impact in the world. That changed a little bit as I was going through my career, but getting back to the environment that impacts people most, which is their home, uh, was something that I was really passionate about. And so, When I dropped out of corporate America, I got the opportunity to get turned down by about 10 banks as I tried (laughs) first apartment building. And they said, you didn't have the right experience. And I started going down my resume and they're like, yeah, we don't care about any of that. And so I started fixing and flipping houses. And eventually I had somebody come up and invite me into a joint venture. And through that, I got the experience I needed. And then I left Richmond, Virginia, which where that first project was. It came down to Greensboro, North Carolina and started operating and, you know, executing against deals that I was finding and funding. Great intro. I love it. 
I'm always interested to hear people's background, especially real estate investors, because it's always a unique path. It seems it's never one that's like, oh yeah, I went to real estate school and now I'm a real estate investor. It's like an accountant turned real estate investor or an engineer turned real estate investor, you know, maybe a dentist or, you know, there's all kinds of walks of life, but rarely is it that straight, you know, real estate investor went to school for real estate investing. So I can also relate with you from the engineering aspect, right? We were kind of chatting a little bit before the show about why engineers, in our opinion, not that we're biased, make great real estate investors. So tell us about your transition. How did you fall into real estate? Why real estate from an engineer? Like what led you to that path? Yeah. So I guess my second or third year in work, I was like, I want to be an M&A guy. And so I don't know if your listeners have watched the Thomas Crown Affair, but I wanted to be Thomas Crown. I wanted to go in, buy assets, turn them around and sell them. And I went and talked to an attorney who went to UVA Law. And she said, yeah, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Like you're already, <laughs> why would you go back to law school to go do work 80 or 90 or 100 hours a week? And I was like, well, because I want to do this. She said, you don't have to do that. You already have the analytical background. And so when I coupled that kind of lofty, crazy idea with what I was already interested in, which was apartment investing. And so as my friend Duran and I were sitting on the stoop of our apartments, in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, we started doing the math. I was making three ninety five, or paying three ninety five a month. He was paying three ninety five a month, and we both had two roommates. And so our units were making about twelve hundred. And but wait, there were more. And so we did the math, and the guy was making seven hundred thousand dollars a year. We'd never seen him. We never talked to him. He had third party property management in place. We're like, this is amazing. He decoupled his time for money. And so I've been trying to figure out how to get back to the place where I decoupled time for money. And so when you add in one of the new mergers and acquisitions, you know, I frame myself as somebody who buys broken apartment building businesses, not just apartments, but apartment building businesses. And that business word is important because it changes the way people value the asset, right? With a business, it's a multiple of revenue. If you're buying a single family home, it's worth what the other stuff around it sold for. And so you know, I had a Six Sigma background and that allowed me to look at P&Ls and do process improvements. It's like, man, I've got all the tools necessary in order to improve the operational efficiency of a business. And so we started applying that against the properties that we bought, creating business plans. And, you know, I get to be Thomas Crown now. I get to go buy, you know, mergers, right? I get to go buy things. I get to fix them. And then we can either refinance them, get the capital investment that we put in out, or we can sell them and have a really big payday. And so, you know, that's the business model. Man. I love it. Sounds like you should send a good thank you card to that attorney who, what could I say, uh, suggested you not going back to law school, right? So yeah. Well, tell us about that kind of first step, how you got involved in real estate investing. So did you start investing in real estate on the side of your day job? Did you quit cold turkey and then go figure it out after that? What did that transition look like for you? Yeah. So I was making a pretty decent income, as you can imagine, with building a business that big. So I was lending money to fix and flip. Oh, okay. And so I was a hard money guy and I was learning their business through those investments. I always ask, hey, let me look inside your business. Let me see how the projects are going. And they were gracious enough to let me you know, thumb through and learn some things. And so when I walked out and then I got turned down by the banks, that's what I started doing. I started fixing and flipping. And I happened to be sitting on the porch of one of my projects and a fellow investor pulled up. He was like, hey, we're getting ready to start a project down the street. 
I'd like to go through your house and just check out your finishes. And while he was doing the tour, he started talking about an apartment complex that he wanted to buy. And it was the same one that I'd taken to the banks about four or five months earlier. No kidding. Finance. And the thing about him that was the difference was he'd already bought a building. So he had the experience as far as being a commercial real estate investor. And so I was like, hey, man, please don't leave me out. I really want to do the deal. Anyway, he went and made the offer. He didn't need me, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, He made the offer anyway. They didn't accept, fortunately. And so I circled back. One of the guys that I've been lending money to got approached by him to be the general contractor on the rehab because he was putting a team together now. He said, oh, Jerome talked to me about that one. I am not doing it unless he's in. And so I got into the deal that way by being brought in by somebody that I helped without any expectation on the front end. And so that got us into the deal. And, you know, this was a huge rehab. We did the roof, siding, parking lot, landscaping, took out walls on the first floor, added a half bath and a laundry on the first floor, and then redid everything, tile, paint, flooring, you name it, granite, stainless steel appliances. And so that project we brought where average rents were at six ninety five, and today we're getting eleven ninety five with that property. Heck yeah, I love it. Well, I know you're a big advocate of that joint venture structure as opposed to syndication. So tell us about how that worked out for you. And have you continued that model going forward? Yes, Jacob. You know, I come from, you know, like I said, a family where, you know, we were very blue collar, right? My dad mm-hmm. was enlisted. And so I didn't have attorneys or doctors or dentists coming over for dinner, right? And yeah. so as far as having accredited investors or high net worth people in my network, I didn't. The majority of people I went to college with are first generation go away to college kids. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, well, how do you get people to give you money that are just making their first money? They're dealing with student debt and all this other stuff. And so what I found is there was a small cluster of friends from high school and college who had done well financially. And we were sophisticated investors. And a lot of the guys that do syndication only want to deal with accredited investors right? because it allows them to advertise more broadly and do a bunch of other things. And I was like, well, if I only dealt with accredited investors, none of my friends would be able to participate. And so we went down this path. And the fact of the matter is a lot of people who are interested in being operators will put their money into a deal passively as in a syndication, thinking that it will get them the experience they need in order to go get a deal done. And the fact of the matter is it's just not true. Again, I got turned down 10 times when I was trying to get a loan to go do a commercial real estate deal. So what you really need to do is get into a joint venture, sign a loan in that joint venture. In doing that, you actually get the experience you need to create that track record to be able to go do a deal yourself. Fortunately or unfortunately, I see this as a fraternity or sorority. Somebody's got to bring you into this space or you're going to be on the sidelines looking in. And so I really like the model. And so that first deal taught me one of the toughest lessons and it's make sure your values are aligned. You know, I didn't really know the guys that I was going into the deal with. And because I didn't know them, we saw the world very differently and it caused some conflict. We were able to work through it, but from my perspective, it was just some unnecessary conflict. And so now we're really particular about who we partner with and, you know, all the guys and gals that are in our deals, we've either known for a long time or they've been through our coaching program. And so that has created an opportunity for us to vet each other out and really get to know each other and have a good understanding of, you know, the person's character and creed and what they'll do when times get tough. Yeah. And 
maybe for the audience members, Jay, maybe compare and contrast the quick differences between a joint venture, a JV, and a syndication really quickly. Yeah. So as a kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to be a few things, but a fighter pilot. (laughs) And I like the airplane analogy because I think it makes it pretty simple, right? So let's talk about syndications first, right? Syndications, think about a jumbo jet, commercial airline. You walk in, uh, you see the pilot, you see your stewards and stewardess, and you see all the grounds people. And then you have the passengers getting on the plane. The people that are actually getting paid for being there in a syndication, they're the general partnership. They make the project go. They're responsible for generating a return, making sure everybody's money gets to where it's going and gets back safely with some more friends, right? The people that get on the plane pay to get on. They're customers. And so those are the limited partners in the syndication structure. Why do I say they pay to get on? Well, the general partnership gets paid based on holding back a portion of the equity. And so people talk about 80-20 spend, 70-30. And so that 30% is the fee that they're charging on the equity. So if it's a 70-30 split and you're a limited partner, every dollar that you put in is getting you 70% in equity or 70 cent in equity. Sure. So you know, you're paying 30 cent to be a part of that deal. Nothing wrong with that as long as you get a return on your money, but it's just you're paying to participate. With the joint ventures, we are, you know, everybody's a owner, everybody has an active role. It's like being in a fighter jet, man. You don't see any people just going up for a ride. No joy rides. (laughs) And so, you know, everybody gets in, everybody's got a job and a role. And I mean, because the deals are a little tougher to handle because we typically do smaller deals with joint ventures, just because of the feasibility of being able to get them done. uh, It's a little more exciting. It's a little more of a roller coaster. And so we like that model. We think that because we focus on workforce housing, there's a lot more opportunity in that space. And then on a percentage basis, we think we're able to generate a bigger percent income increase when we uh, go through the full business plan. That's an awesome analogy. I love that. I'll have to remember that something you've obviously given some thought to. So really cool there. Now, earlier in the show, you mentioned you had the opportunity to be turned down by a bank 10 plus times. I thought that was a unique way to phrase that. And I think it sheds some light to your mindset. So let's jump into that the opportunity to be turned down by a bank. Like when I'm dealing with loan applications and stuff, I'm stressed out, you know, I'm like jumping through hoops, provide all these things. And you're like, ah, the opportunity to be turned down. So what's your mindset around that? And, you know, why is it an opportunity in your eyes? I think you just figure out what doesn't work, right? I did this thing the wrong way. It was the most inefficient and effective way to do it (laughs) myself, right? I listen to 40 hours a week of podcasts. I was reading books. I was going to YouTube you. And because I didn't take the time to pay somebody who'd already been down the road to tell me the fast way or the shortcut or the most direct way to do it, I spent my tires. And in that, I learned a lot. I learned what banks are looking for. I learned what they're not looking for. And so I saw it as an opportunity to find out what didn't work. Do I want other people to go down that path? No. I mean, I think it's silly in hindsight, and it's probably slowed down my growth two or three years. But the fact of the matter is I now have that experience and I can share that story with others. And, you know, that's part of the narrative. I listen to a ton of podcasts and when I get the opportunity to share with great hosts like you, I just want the listeners to be able to benefit from my experiences because I don't want them to go make the same mistakes that I did. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of this kind of 
scenario I was reading recently in Robert Kiyosaki's new book called Fake. And he talks about going to a bank for a loan application and presenting, let's say your like report card or your college transcript. And they would say like, I don't care about this, right? They want to see your balance sheet. They want to see your profit and loss. They want to see your financial statements, right? So the banks don't really care about, you know, like you were alluding to earlier, like, you know, your engineering accolades. They want to see, you know, how many apartment deals have you done? What's your net worth? What's your, you know, financial statement look like? So just something to pull out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a totally different world and we don't talk about it in school, right? Like I got an MBA and we didn't have any of these conversations and it's just amazing what you find out when you actually begin practicing and being a practitioner of the business. Yeah, awesome, Jay. So what did you do next after you got in that very first joint venture? You know, you said, you know, that went okay. You know, there's a little bit of unnecessary challenges. I'm sure some learning moments to be had from there, but did you take those forward and continue doing JVs or what did that next step look like for you? Yeah, I mean, our whole model is built on JVs. And so it was kind of like when I got my engineering license, like the day after we closed, now I was an expert in multifamily investing and <laughs> a lend to me. And I just was like, this is the most insane thing because I don't know any more today than I knew yesterday. But because the press release came out, I was interesting. And so we formed a pretty deep relationship with one of the community banks in the area. And we took that relationship from Virginia and brought it down to North Carolina. And we started buying deals. Our first deal was a 20 unit and we added another eight with that. And then we did a 26 and then we did a 10. And I mean, we've just been buying deals and, you know, varying sizes as they come up. But what we've done in doing that is establish ourselves as closers, right? And so we get to see deals before anybody else does. And we enjoy the opportunity to write a letter of intent before anybody else gets to tour the property. Yeah. And buyers ready to move, then we're able to, you know, secure that deal without any competition and go through our due diligence process. And so we rush to get into due diligence and then we take our time once we get the property secured. What does your quote unquote investor base or in this instance more of a partnership base look like as compared to a syndication investor base, right? Syndicators might have investors across the country because they're passive and they don't have to be actively involved in the deal. What does your network look like? Is it close friends and family? Has it expanded out to you know an online network or presence of people? What does that look like for you? Most days, it looks like a football team, right? <laughs> got friends who played at the collegiate level and some that have dipped their toes in the waters at other levels. But you know, with that said, it's really just close friends, right? It, the majority of folks that are partners of mine I've known for 12 years or more, you know, I know their wives, I know their kids or their husbands, whatever the case may be. And we have this really deep relationship where it's, we're aligned on this mission of doing good in the community and making money, right? That's the one thing that I can say we really enjoy about the joint venture model. We can have a meeting amongst the partners and say, hey, here's what's going on. How do you want to handle it? Instead of, you know, having to report back to our limited partners that, hey, we wanted to make this decision, but we couldn't because returns are more important than anything. We can make a strategic decision that this is going to impact the community long range. And so we should not take profits this month or we should give somebody a rent break or whatever the case may be. And so we like that piece of flexibility. And then, you know, everybody has input into the business plan. 
And we get to make those adjustments or pivots to that business plan as we're operating without a whole lot of fuss. And so we really like that model. Now, in a joint venture, everyone has an active role, right? By definition, they, they really can't be passive or you'd be you know, providing a syndication more or less. So what do those active roles look like? Is it you know, somebody maybe on a social media team and maybe somebody on due diligence, maybe somebody on acquisitions? Or what does that look like exactly? Yeah. So our process, you know, in Myers Methods has four steps, find it, fund it, fix it, flip it. And, you know, in the find it phase, it can be everything from talking to brokers to doing due diligence on properties that may be up for sale to doing mailings to whatever we can do for lead acquisition. And then we determine whether or not that lead is a deal. And so people can do some analysis on the front end, you know, and what we're looking for is folks who are interested in growing their portfolio to come in and participate in that type of stuff. Then, you know, when it's time to actually fund the deal, you know, we put the package together. We talk to our friends and family and put together our team that's actually going to close the deal. And, you know, we get all of our financials together and just kind of walk down that road of doing due diligence, right? So the due diligence inspection, going through all the materials and making sure we didn't miss anything researching stuff that we're not certain about or haven't dealt with before and bring that back to the group to report out. And then from there, you know, we get to closing and deal with all the bank account setups and all that stuff, getting the operating agreements put together, so on and so forth. We'll move into the fix it phase, right? And so that's where we're hand in hand with the property managers operating the property. And, you know, this is the longest phase of the process. And so, you know, if you spend six months pursuing a deal, you'll spend 60 months owning it, right? And so in that space, there's a whole lot of decisions to get made. We do a quarterly call if everything's going smooth. We do monthly financial reports and probably have some chatter back and forth via email on how it performed that month. And, you know, if we need to do a call for something specific, we'll do that. And just, you know, go through the process of operating and fixing the building and, you know, making the strategic decisions necessary along the way to make sure that we deliver on what we put it in the business plan when we went into the deal. And then on the backside, we flip it, right? And so either refinance it or we sell it. And in the refinancing piece, you know, there's a lot of activity that happens with financials and just making sure the property is appraisal ready, got clean financials, so on and so forth. And then if you're selling it, it gets even more uh, particular. Somebody's got to deal with the seller. Somebody's got to provide the information to the buyer and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's a ton of stuff to do. And we split it up based on, you know, one, who's actually competent, two, who has a desire to get more competence or get more experience, and then three, you know, what has to be done and who actually has capacity to do it. Well, I like how you've kind of broken it down to the four Fs, find, fund, fix, and flip if I've got those right. You've got these systems in place now, but I'm sure that wasn't always the case. So, what mistakes did you make starting out or looking back? What things did you do that you would now do differently? Any advice there? Yeah. So I think my biggest blunder is like, you idiot, right? Is taxes <laughs> on that 20 unit that I just mentioned. I modeled those taxes as $1,000 and they were $10,000. And so, you know, a couple of people looked at the package that we put together. They looked at the model and none of us caught it, right? But you know, having specific things that you're checking on the pro forma is the gospel when you get into it. So to add insult to injury, we thought that the attorney 
pay the taxes because we're really close to the due date for taxes for the year. And in fact, he gave us a credit for the half, first half of the year for us to go close or pay the taxes. And so it rolls around February or March, we're getting phone calls from the tax assessor saying, hey, we're going to foreclose on your property for non-payment of your taxes. I'm just like, man, this is insane. So, you know, just really making sure that somebody does it and then somebody else checks it. You know, having, and, but you got to have competent people checking things because if you don't, then they don't know what they're looking at. It's blind leading the blind. I think one of the other kind of big mistakes that we made is just rushing to it, right? Mm, uh, yeah. Like growing and, you know, as you do bigger and bigger deals, you know, you need stronger and stronger financial partners. And so if you're not actively cultivating those relationships, uh, you get in a really big pickle, especially if you've got money that's going hard or you need more time and the seller isn't really interested in giving you more time to get the deal closed. And so one of the things that we figured out as we went along is every investor is dealing with four challenges, knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital, right? If you don't have knowledge, you just aren't ready to invest in this type of real estate. If you don't have deal flow, and there's a big difference between leads and deals, even though they have all the same letters just rearranged. If you don't have deal flow, then you're not going to get a deal close. If you don't have experience, nobody's going to lend to you from a banking perspective. So you can have a great deal, but the money's not going to show up contrary to popular belief. And then once you have that experience, capital is always looking for experienced operators with great deals. They want both of those. They are necessary. Both are necessary, not one. And so if you can find other operators who are experienced, you'll be able to find capital. If you don't have capital, it's because you don't have a deal or you don't have experience. Most people don't have either one because they don't have the knowledge. And so I encourage people to get knowledge. I think one of the, we talked about being inefficient and ineffective. Me going through and consuming all the content that I did just to get a piece here and a piece there was diminishing returns. <laughs> and I ended up being really confused a lot of days, Jacob. You know, Michael Blank may say one thing, Joe Fairless may say another, Vinny Chopra another. You know, all these guys are pontificating and sharing their experience. And at the end of the day, everybody's got their perspective on why they think what they think. But if you're consuming stuff from everybody, why are you trying to get your foundation, your base? You are going to be totally confused because it's not going to all agree. And if you don't fully understand the frame for back to being an engineer, right? You got a set of assumptions and they're right across a specific frame. If you don't understand the frame and the assumptions, you're going to get the right answer for the wrong problem. And that's going to get ugly. And so, you know, we wanted to create an ecosystem or environment where people can get that education and then they can supplement and add on top of that, but they have a foundation that's solid. Absolutely. I think you bring up a good point there. You know, you mentioned Joe, Mike, and uh, Vinny, all good three pals of ours, right? Those are all, all great guys. But something they have in common is they're all multifamily real estate investors. So if you're listening to just them, yeah, you've got a base knowledge of multifamily real estate, but there's guys out there talking about fix and flips and buy and hold and raw land, right? So you can even compound that confusion by you know, listening to Jill and Jack do it about their land investing program. And then you talk to Vinny and he's, you know, syndicating 300 units in Orlando and you talk to Joe and he's, you know, syndicating deals in Dallas or Ohio or wherever it might be. You're just like inundated with all this information, especially starting out. So 
I definitely feel the pain there. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely crazy. And I was doing that, right? Because I was still fixing and flipping houses, right? Because I only had one deal under my belt. I was, you know, trying to figure out how to wholesale. And I was just going this whole spectrum, right? We're wholesaling, we're fixing and <laughs> buying and holding, we're multifamily, we're doing everything, baby. And I think that's the one thing with a lot of investors. They come into the space and they're like, okay, well, I want to do all these things. Yeah, but what one are you going to start with, right? You got to start with one and figure out how to make that work. And then you add on to that. And that's why I think it's important, you know, to get that body of knowledge foundationally. And then you can augment off of that. Yeah, I love it. There's a great quote by, I don't know who said it. So I'll maybe attribute it to myself. I think that's how that works. But uh, it says, you can have anything in life you want. You just can't have everything. Not all at once. I think you can get it all, but you can't have it all at once. Fair. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, let's make that a Jacob Ayers quotable. We'll, we'll uh, caveat in there, uh, Jay Myers, which, hey, I was going to bring up this joke, so might as well bring it in now, but you spell your last name M-Y-E-R-S. My last name is A-Y-E-R-S. I think maybe somehow back in the day, our families got confused and just throwing this out there, I think we might be related. I know we are, man. (laughs) Well, hey, something else I wanted to bring up is this thing of leverage, right? Real estate investing is a leverage game. You know, you're leveraging the bank's money to buy real estate. You're leveraging other people's money to help you buy real estate. You're leveraging other people's experience. So this whole thing is leveraging, you know, your team's experience, your team's capital, you know, your team's, you know, all kinds of things. So talk about how that's helped you in your career. Yeah. I mean, if I'm not able to get 80% debt on the loan, I mean, what's the point, right? We talk about the dollar. You mentioned Robert Kiyosaki earlier, right? He talks about the whole point of real estate is the tax advantages and the ability to put a large amount of leverage on it go somewhere else and ask to get an 80% loan on something that you're trying to accomplish. The answer is going to be no. And so, you know, we enjoy the opportunity to take $200,000 and be able to buy a million dollar asset. Like that is, allows us to scale because it's about controlling the equity piece, right? We get in, we take control of the asset, we move the levers and knobs in order to increase the net operating income. And if we can boost the net operating income enough, it will change the valuation to a place where you can come in, re-leverage that debt, take advantage or harvest that equity you were created, right? So let's say we buy a million dollar building and then we make it worth $1.3 million over the course of two and a half years or two years. That $300,000 in equity that we created, we created by only having $200,000 in. So now we went from more than doubled the money that we have in the deal and with only having put in 200 hard. And so that allows us to play with house money now. We can put our 200 back where it came from. And now let's take this 300. And what can we do with the 300? And then now this thing is becoming a snowball. And you can continue to do that over and over again. You know, we've enjoyed, you know, cap rate compression and markets going up with aggressive uh, population growth and job growth for, you know, the last 10 years. And there's been some people who weren't strong operators who are going to get exposed. But for those people who focus on operations, they're going to be able to continue to operate and they're going to get some opportunities to buy from those folks who weren't focused on operations and have just taken advantage of cap rate compression. Yeah. So let's talk about that with a forward looking perspective here. What do you see in the future? What does that look like for you? What are you continuing to try to do? Where are you trying to grow? So yeah. what's the future hold? Yeah. So I may be contrarian here, right? 
I still haven't heard a good answer to this question. Where are all the people going to go? Like for all the people who were living in houses or apartments and renting before, where are they going to go? And the fact of the matter is like, there wasn't a issue with the real estate market, right? We did something that was a healthcare issue and made the adjustment to try to save the lives of the people that were most at risk. Yeah. So when we take those restrictions away, those people are still going to need places to live. And I don't believe like everybody's going to adopt what we see from other cultures, like Hispanic cultures and even uh, Far East cultures, where, you know, you've got multiple generations living in the home long range. It may happen short term, but long range, I just don't see that being a fact of life. And so, you know, I believe in multifamily. One of the reasons why we invest in it is because you can't outsource it, right? And people might stop traveling, but they still need a place to live. And, you know, we weren't big on Airbnb and hotels scared us mainly because we don't really know how they work, but that seems proved to be prudent based on what we're doing right now from social distancing and the travel restrictions. So we believe that multifamily is going to fare really well. You know, rent collections in April were down a little bit, but towards the end of the month, you know, a lot of people caught up. They were able to get their stimulus checks in and they actually used that to pay their rent. May collections, we got more in the first five days of May than we did in the first five days of April. And so what that signals to us is, hey, you know, if we can start opening things back up and get people back to work, we're probably going to be in a pretty good position. There will be some people who, you know, were in the middle of rehabs or had low cash positions, and they may have a little bit of trouble. But fortunately, a lot of the lenders are working with folks. And so all the folks who are sitting on the sideline, rubbing their hands together, thinking about, all the great deals they're going to get, I'm not sure that as many of them are going to show up as people are hoping for. And I think the people that are actually going to get those deals are the people with extensive track records and a whole lot of cash who can be aggressive and you know lock these deals in and give people certainty of close so that they solve that acute issue that they're dealing with. Yeah, sure. And when we're talking about multifamily investing, there are even subclasses within multifamily, class A, B, C, so on, right? And I know you and I both invest in what we would call workforce, blue collar, affordable housing, right? So tell us about that asset class or that sub-asset class, if you will, and why you like that specifically. Yeah, I just it's where I came from, right? I believe that soldiers, firefighters, police officers, teachers deserve a great place to live, right? And I like wealthy people. I think they're great, but I'm not interested in catering my business model to them. The folks that make the world go around are the people that I want to serve. And I want to make sure that they get treated well. What we've learned in our due diligence when we've looked at properties is that there's a lot of owners with cognitive dissonance. They are wealthy and they are bleeding the property for everything they can. And they don't care what type of environment that they provide for the people who are their residents. We believe that owners have responsibility and we want to make sure that we take care of responsibility. Can we do everything for the residents? No, and no, we don't plan to. You know, some people will call me a slumlord, man. We had a condemn unit because a lady that was living in it stopped paying her water bill. The water got turned off. She reported it to code enforcement. Code enforcement said, hey, your residents have to have running water. We explained, well, we don't pay the water bill there. She had stopped working. She was pregnant. And she stopped paying her rent. And in order to get an extra month in the unit, she went through that process of getting the unit condemned so that nobody could live in it. So if she moved out after she was evicted, 
we turned the water back on. Our condemnation letter went away and we were able to get somebody into that unit within a couple of weeks and begin the process of, you know, having a great, healthy relationship with our residents. And so, you know, there's good and bads with everything, man. We'll have people get back behind a month, maybe a month and a half, and then you'll see them catch up. And, you know, because we have that flexibility in our business model of having partners, you know, we can just go in and say, hey, you know, we're evaluating this. Here's our process. Let's put them on a payment plan and make sure that they keep their promises and that buys them more time to catch up. And we can approve those or disapprove those based on, you know, whatever the resident's history is. And we really enjoy that level of flexibility as we, you know, move through these properties. Because again, we're working with the people that make the world go around. You know, for a lot of people, if they have a $500 event, they're in trouble, right? Yeah. A tire, the car breaks in some other way, kid has to go to the emergency room, they're in trouble right now. And so we don't want to be cold hearted or uh, disingenuous when we deal with those folks. And so, you know, we want to build a portfolio serving those folks. Well, Jay, that sense of community seems to be an underlying theme throughout your business from the way you structure your JVs and, you know, partnering with close friends and family to, you know, developing relationships in the community. And, you know, like you said, giving back to the local communities and that workforce housing, providing a solution for those people and kind of full circle going back to, you know, where you grew up from and going back to your roots, right? So I love that. I think it's awesome. Yeah, man. I won't ever forget where I came from, regardless of what happens, regardless of how big our portfolio gets. And, you know, I believe you have to have somebody that's pulling you along and you need to reach back and bring somebody with you. And so, you know, that's our goal is to bring other people into the space because I think it's an amazing way to live your life and make a significant impact on the world. I love it. Well, I know you're doing a lot to give back through different things you're doing, and we'll get into that in, at the end of the show. But let's go ahead and wrap up with the lightning round. Just a series of questions we like to fire every one of our guests. Well, fire at every one of our guests, should I say. You're up for it? Yeah, man. Let's do it. All right. The first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome it? Yeah, I didn't have experience, right? I couldn't get into the game because I didn't know anybody and I didn't have the experience necessary to get it. And so what I did is I just kept playing solitary, right? I call it next logical step. I did know people who were fixing and flipping and I figured if I was in the real estate investor space long enough, I would bump into somebody who was interested in doing what I was doing or already doing it. And fortunately for me, that worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jay, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? I don't know if it actually contributes to my success, but it makes <laughs> right. So I get up and I walk six miles just about every day. And in that, I spend some time with myself thinking and reflecting and strategizing. And it's not for time. It's just for distance. And so when I get back, I can check it off and said I did something for today. Yeah, kind of getting your day started on the right foot on your own terms, right? Rather than just rocketing to, you know, emails and stuff. Yeah. Well, Jay, do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day to day? I like Rentometer, man. I, oh, yeah. Some people turn their nose up at it, but I found it to be more accurate than CoStar. Do you use the paid version? I think there's like a paid version where you can get more detailed reports, or is the free version good enough for what you're looking at? No, we get the pay version. We okay. like get the synopsis and we actually use it in our deal summaries when we put packages together. Yeah, sure. We'll link Rentometer in the show notes if our audience members want to check that out. It's essentially a software, online software program that shows you rents in your area or your zip code based on 
unit size, right? Yep. Yeah. Sure does. Awesome. And comps and I mean, tells you distances and everything. I think it's a great resource. Great. Awesome. Yeah. We'll link that in the show notes for audience members to check out if they're interested in. Jay, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? I like Millionaire Success Habits by Dean Graziosi. That one really hit home for me. It talks about, you know, it's all about your mindset. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do. It's like 80% mindset and 20% skills and techniques and actual ability, right? And so, you know, once you believe that you can do it and you start going through the actions necessary in order to improve it and facing that failure defeat, but knowing deep down in your soul that it's something you can do, you're much more likely to be successful at it. And so he drives that point home and gives you a bunch of tools and techniques in order to be able to foster and create that reality. Yeah, great. That's a book I haven't read. So we'll definitely link that in the show notes for audience members to pick up. Jay, last question in the lightning round. If you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20-year-old Jay? Go to the RIA meeting. Yeah. I didn't even know what the RIA meeting was until after you know a number of years in corporate America. And I was like, man, because I didn't think networking was important. I was one of those folks who you know put a stream level of value on personal competence, right? I wanted to be the expert. I wanted to know what to do. I guess it was just kind of that engineering brain. I wanted to be able to do it. And your network is just as important as you being competent. And so what I encourage people to do is like get knowledge and then go network because that's going to help with your deal flow and finding people who have experience in capital. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. Well, Jay, It's been a lot of fun talking about your journey on the show here, but you're actually no stranger to the mic. You actually host your own podcast. So tell us a little bit about that and then the other things you're doing. I know you've got your hand in several different ventures here. So tell us about, you know, what's going on in your life. Man, I really appreciate the opportunity to share. So, you know, we've got two podcasts. One's a real estate podcast called Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. And we tell war stories of real life operators. The goal is to make sure that people don't commit the same mistakes that the other operators have done. And so we've had people from all over the country join me on a Zoom call and we do a video and audio version of it where, you know, people share some of the funniest and other times scariest stories I've ever heard. You know, we had Brian Burke come on. He's pretty big on bigger pockets. Great guy, yeah. Yeah. Brian talked about having to write a $15,000 a month check for one of his properties for three and a half years, right? Because he didn't want to do a capital call. Mouth fell to the floor when I heard that. Yesterday, uh, Janine Thompson's episode came out. She talked about sitting in her Plymouth Voyager minivan in front of her three quads and watching people run drugs and trying to figure out why the police couldn't get those guys that were selling drugs on either side of her property out of the neighborhood because it was adversely impacting her impact. She sure. talks about her golden retriever beside her. This is one of the funniest stories I've ever heard, right? And then uh, Kenny Wolf came on. He talked about having to figure out, he offering to pay people to move out so that he could yeah. thing to fix the slab issues they were having because you guys have those shrink swell stuff in Texas. And then a Donahue Baker, who's a developer out of Jersey, came in. He talked about how he went, he was $500,000 short and he had 30 days to close a deal and what he did in order to raise that money to get his deal closed. And so, you know, we've got people from all over the country coming in, sharing their stories. And 
you know, it's not HGTV or, you know, that happily ever after. We want people who are getting into the space, either as passives or active investors to know, hey, this is the real deal. And I think operators from across the country are enjoying it because they get to find out about things that maybe they haven't encountered. The second podcast is called Dreamcatchers. And we tell the stories of people who've exited the matrix, right? And, you know, for me, exiting the matrix is leaving corporate America. For somebody else, it may be leaving an individual contributor role and being a manager of people. But whatever it is, it's just like, you've decided that you're going to live life on your terms. And now that you've decided to live life on your terms, you need stories to encourage you along the way because it changes your experience. It changes the people that you spend your time with. And so we want to be bearers of good news and encouragement. And then, you know, if your listeners are interested in finding out more about, you know, why we like syndication over JV and how to get into multifamily real estate investing or to scale their business, on MyersMethods.com, you can grab a free four-step guide and it'll break down JV's syndications, our process for buying apartment buildings and you know, we talk for, we've got a 20 minute goodie bag where we just talk about that for 15 or 20 minutes straight. Awesome. Great. Yeah. So those two podcasts, we'll definitely link those in the show notes. I'm sure you can find those wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, whether that's Apple podcast, Google podcast, YouTube, et cetera. And then myersmethods.com. That's M-Y-E-R-S-M-E-T-H-O-D-S.com. Right. So I had to think about that for a second, but yeah, great. So that's the best place for people to find you is MyersMethods.com. Yeah, that's perfect. And then the other place you guys can find me is on LinkedIn. I'm super active on LinkedIn. And I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, if you're searching for me. Absolutely. Well, Jay, hey, it's been so much fun having you on the podcast. As we're wrapping up here, any parting piece of advice would you like to leave with the audience members? Yeah, your dream should be real. It doesn't matter what you guys want to do. Your dream should absolutely be real. And it's up to you to find the people and the resources to make it real. Awesome. I love that. Jay, I really enjoyed this podcast. I look forward to having you back on in the near future. Man, this is great, man. I can't wait to come back and update you guys. Thanks. Love it so much, Jay. Take care. Till next time. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Jay Myers. Hey, I hope you got so much value from that conversation. For all those resources we mentioned in today's show, you can find those in the show notes at www.jacobairs.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.